Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open it to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we are beginning a new series for one Sunday, and we're going to pick it up four weeks later with the second uh, one because of uh, just different things going on. But we're going to start a new series in 2 Thessalonians. So go there to chapter 1, and I'll read 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 2. And then we're going to go to chapter 3 and read verses 16 to 18. So hear the word of the Lord from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Going to chapter 3, verse 16. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Lord, we pray that your grace would continue to come to us now as we meditate on these words. We pray that your peace would be multiplied to us in every way and that you would give us peace always in every way. We pray, Father, that you would guide us and strengthen us. May your spirit move amongst us now and open eyes and soften hearts and save those who are not yet Christian, who are watching now live here on Zoom or in the, in the future on video or audio. We pray, Lord, that you would speak and that people would hear your words and not merely the words of a human. And where my words don't match up with your words, grant discernment to our people that you might be glorified and that we might be strengthened and built up in grace and peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're one of the first 100 participants at a brand new Chick-fil-A restaurant, you get Chick-fil-A for a whole year. Did you know that? You get Chick-fil-A for a whole, new, a whole year. There's one opening off of the 110 freeway, I think, recently on the way to Torrance. We went to the Torrance one, and there's one, I think, at Carson um, that's under construction now. In case you want to mark your calendars and keep an eye out. But if you're one of the first 100 to get there in line, then you will get Chick-fil-A for a year. Now, it's not exactly Chick-fil-A 365 days a year minus 52 Sundays. It is more like one free meal combo a week. So you get 52 combos is what you get, which is not a bad deal, depending on how long you have to, to work for that first one to get there. So that would be a pretty good deal. But you know what would be a better deal than, than free Chick-fil-A for a year is free gasoline for a year, right, for your cars. Feel me on that one, right, free gas for a year. That would be great. Um, for those of us who drive and have a car, imagine having free gas for one year. I mean, and if you could actually not have to just be for you, but you could share it with others, you'd have a pretty busy year, right? With friends and family. If you're the one who has to go and get the gas, but it's free for you for a year. I mean, um, would you take it if you could? I would. I mean, imagine all the gospel opportunities you'd have with neighbors as well. And what if, what if to get this free gas for a year, you had to check in on your phone every morning that you were going to get gas? and they would give you a brand new code, four digit code just for that day. So every time you were gonna get gas, you had it for a year, but you had to do that. Would you still do it? 
to spend five minutes a day or three minutes a day to register online and get that free code? Would you put the time in to do that to get free gas for a year? I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer, right? I, I would do that for Chick-fil-A. Of course I would do it for free gas. Free gas for a year. Free gas is better than free Chick-fil-A. But what is better than free gas and free Chick-fil-A even combined? Free grace. The grace that comes from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. It's better than free gas. It's better than free Chick-fil-A. And best of all, it's actually free and available to us every single day. Not for a year, not for two years, but throughout the rest of your existence here on earth and into eternity. We are grace junkies as Christians. We need God's grace. We need God. And so we need his grace. We need his peace. And God is not stingy. God is not overly strict with a super high standard and with his arms crossed and a scowl on his face because you're not measuring up. That's not God. God is generous and kind and audaciously free. He's audaciously generous and he's, he's lavish with what he pours out on sinners like us. And we need grace because grace is the gas that powers our Christian progress, our Christian lives. Grace is the gas that powers our Christian living. And we need grace because we run out of this spiritual gas, don't we? You ever feel like your gas tank, your grace tank is on empty with the, with the light on in need of more grace? We run out of grace. And we have a ready supply of it, but here's the problem. Grace decays. Grace decays. It gets old and stale. Some of you know the story in Exodus chapter 16 where God says, I'm going to give you manna every day. So he promises to give manna every day to the Israelites. And, and then he says, you only get enough for that day, though. And then the next day, I'll give you more. Don't get for more than one day. Just get one day. And some people disobeyed, and they got so hungry that they stored up more manna. And what happened the next day? It got rotten, nasty, smelly. There were worms in it, even like a supernatural kind of nastiness that went into the manna because they disobeyed God. God would give manna every day. There'd be enough for today and then enough for tomorrow. And you're not going to hoard because that manna is for today and it'll get stale for tomorrow. And that's similar with grace. Grace decays. You can't run this month's errands on last year's gas. You can't flourish. If you're married, you can't flourish in your romance today with your spouse on last year's date nights or the dates you used to have when you were super romantic before you got married. You can't keep your hunger satisfied, can't keep your stomach satisfied with, uh, from hunger by your meal from two days ago. You're gonna get hungry again. You're gonna need more food. And as we starve ourselves of grace, we shrink in our capacity to receive and enjoy God and his grace. And that doesn't only, and, that, and oftentimes it's not because God is withholding grace, it's because we are refusing grace. We're dismissing grace. We're ignoring grace. Here's God with his love and his pursuit of us. And we're so preoccupied, like Chris prayed in the prayer of confession, with other things that the grace that we could have, we forfeit. By distraction, by discouragement, by doubt, by disbelief, by bitterness, by resentment, by unforgiveness, by presumption, by arrogance. And so we're not only, and then we feel ashamed and guilty 
But we're not only ashamed and guilty for spurning God's grace, we're impoverished and we're malnourished and we're weak. And we don't want to do that. So how do we grow in grace? How do we grow in grace? Here's the main idea of the message today. Okay, it's a main idea, not a goal, because it's an idea. It's a thought. Here's a statement. God gives grace and peace to his church through apostolic ministry. That's the main idea of these, of these two sections, the beginning and end of 2 Thessalonians. God gives grace. God generously, lavishly gives grace and peace to his church through apostolic ministry. So we'll break down this main idea and this pas these passages in three sections. God gives grace and peace to his church. That's point two, to his church through apostolic ministry, okay? Point one, God gives grace and peace. Point two, to his church. Point three, through apostolic ministry. Let's think about, let's break down this idea one section at a time. So first of all, God gives grace and peace. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 2. Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God, the Father, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then go to chapter 3 verse 16. Paul prays or he says to them, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace in every way. So there is grace to you, peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace. God wants to give peace. God gives peace. God gives grace. Now, does anyone here need more grace and peace in their lives? Anyone, can anyone have, use an extra dose of peace in their soul? I'm sure we all could. Now, the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians here, they needed grace and they needed peace. Let me just tell you the story of the Thessalonians here since we're going to be studying it for a few weeks. The Apostle Paul and Silas, or Silvanus, they go to Thessalonica in, in um, Acts chapter 17, I believe. And um, they go there to preach Jesus as the Lord and Messiah in Jewish synagogues for three Saturdays, three Sabbaths, okay? People believe in Jesus, and they follow him. And so you start preaching the gospel, you're gospelizing, and people believe the gospel. Then you gather them together, and you're establishing a church. So they start gathering these converts together, and a church is formed. Some people get jealous. Some of the Jews get jealous and angry because they're believing Paul's message about the Jewish Messiah rather than their typical Jewish teachings. And so they stir up a riot, and they drag out Jason, who's one of the, the, the converts, a Thessalonian man who was housing Paul and Silas. They take some of his money, the, riot, the, the, the mob takes some of his, his money, and then they finally release him. Then some of the brothers in the new church family there, they sneak Paul and Silas out of the city by night because it's too dangerous for him to wander around during the day. Since, uh, since Paul and Silas started the church and left, the church needed help and guidance. Imagine baby Christians all gathering together with no leader. That's what the church was. You got a bunch of new converts. They, they were Jews, so some of them knew the Old Testament. They did know some things, but they were still new Christians. And so Paul, had to, Paul sent Timothy to encourage the church so that um, they, would, they would get set on the right direction, and Timothy would go back to Paul to give a report. And so Paul writes the first letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, to encourage them to keep on growing, keep on loving God, keep on fighting sin, keep hoping in Jesus Christ. You guys are doing fine. Keep going. The, the, the rapture hasn't come yet. The second coming, which is the rapture in my view, hasn't come yet. Don't worry about that. Just keep trusting Christ. Christ will come soon. Well, the word gets back that person, after that letter, 
where it gets back to Paul before Second Thessalonians, that persecution is still hot in that city. The members of the church are still under persecution and animosity and opposition from their neighbors. Some of the Christians get scared that they missed Christ's return, even after the first letter that Christ did not return yet. They still get scared. And then there's even a fake letter in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, a fake letter was written that they thought was from Paul. And so they thought that the second coming happened and that they missed it. And so Paul had to write to them, to don't worry about that. That's not from me. This is my letter. Okay. And then some of the members, there, there's another problem in the church. Some of the members are being lazy. Some of the members are living off of the, the benevolence fund and the help of other Christians. And they're being, they're being idle. And so Paul says, you guys need to excommunicate that guy if he doesn't repent and start working. So there's some church problems as well. Does that church like that need grace and peace? Yes, they do. And so do we. And so what is grace and peace? What is grace? Let me give you a simple definition of grace. It's not a super theological definition. Just a simple one that I think is helpful. Grace is God's goodness personally given to people, to his people or to people. Actually, I'll say to people, not just his people. Grace is God's goodness personally given to people. It could be non-Christians as well. That's what we call common grace. But God is still personally giving his common grace. The sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous. Even through your masks, Christian or non-Christian, we're breathing in oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide. And that's all because of God's personal gift of goodness to each person still breathing right now. That's God's grace. Now, Paul is not just asking God for common grace that, to all people to come to the Thessalonians, though he wants that. He's going to pray for even more than that special grace, saving grace, Christian grace. What's peace? Let's spend more time on peace here because peace is picked up again in chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Now, Paul is, there's, there's positional peace and then there's experiential peace. Do you guys know the difference? Positional peace would be like, America is not currently at war with China. So there's a positional peace there. But there could still be, experientially, there could be a lack of peace between the two nations, right? Even though there's positional peace. So their status is peace. They're not at war. But then there could actually, in the experience of the relationship, you could actually lack peace. And so Paul is saying, when he says, go to chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, may the Lord of peace give you peace always and in every way he's not talking about positional peace that you and god are right what is positional peace it's when god sent christ to die for your sins and rise from the dead and christ becomes our peace according to ephesians chapter 2 christ takes away the hostility the enmity the damnation we deserve and so christians now have peace with god that's a status that's a position positional peace but paul is not praying for that for those who already have positional peace. He's praying that God's peace would abound to them, would overwhelm them, that God would give them his peace always in every way. So I'm going to call this kind of peace powerful peace. Not that positional peace is not powerful, but a powerfully experienced peace, okay? What is this powerful peace? When you have peace and harmony, what is peace? Peace is harmony um, in all the parties involved in, or let me say it this way. For a person who experiences peace, they have peace and harmony with all other parties that they have relationships with. That's what powerful or all-pervasive peace would be, okay? It's peace and harm, it's harmony for all parties involved. So we can lack peace with God. We can lack peace with each other, with other humans. We can lack peace with this world. 
So for example, we prayed for the, the flood in Japan. Like here's a flood of water, you know, overturning and killing at least 50 people in Japan this past week, or I'm not sure if it's the past week or past two weeks. And that would be a lack of peace in this world, even though it's with, with nature. We're made to rule over nature, but here's a lack of peace and harmony because of a natural disaster. So we can lack peace with nature and we can also lack inner peace, right? Peace with yourself. You can have guilt, you can have shame, you can have brokenness within yourself. So um, Paul is praying here and his desire is that God would give us peace always in every way, a powerful peace in all directions, with God, with other people, with nature, within ourselves. Partial peace is not peace, uh, is not, partial peace is shallow peace. And partial peace is delusional peace. So if I have peace with people but not with God, that's better than nothing. In some ways, that's God's common grace. But if I don't have peace with God, that's, that's a shallow peace. It's not going to last in the end. Okay? So uh, we don't want delusional or shallow peace. We want peace that's rooted in God but spreads out in all kinds of directions after that. And that's what Paul wants for his people here. Even with, now this is chapter 3, verse 16. I'm in 316 if you guys are following along. In the earlier verses, right before 316, Paul is talking about a lack of peace in the church because they have a lazy member, an idle member who should be working and is not working. So there's a lack of peace in the church when you have to discipline somebody. When you have to correct someone and they don't want to repent of their sin, there's a lack of peace. Okay? And so Paul says, even with that, I want you guys to do the disciplinary process. I want you to correct the person and may the Lord give you his peace always and in every way. So we want real peace. But you know what? Real peace sometimes means you need to rebuke people. You need to correct people. You need to restore people. Or you need to be corrected and restored yourself. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And this is not original to me. A lot of preachers say this. I see this in a lot of Christian writings. There are peacemakers and there are peace fakers. Peace fakers are those who fake peace. They don't want to fight. So they're like, you know what? Even though there's a sin there and there needs to be confrontation, I'm going to avoid confrontation because I want peace. And that's peace faking, not peace making. We can't have perfect peace in this broken world, but we need to be clear and work towards peace. And here Paul's saying discipline somebody in the church to be a peacemaker. May God give you his peace. Let me read you a quote from, from G.K. Beale. He says this, we too often think that those who habitually oppose false teaching are pugnacious and cause dissension and that peace comes by agreeing to disagree. Although this is true about certain things, it is true about certain things, there are a number of issues about which the church must take a stand. For example, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, justification by faith. To gloss over disagreements in these more significant areas is to have a superficial peace at the cost of the gospel, which is ultimately no true peace. You guys get that? Sometimes you need to fight for peace. You get that? You have to fight for peace? But isn't fighting a lack of peace? No, sometimes you have to fight for peace because the, pe the, the lack of peace is, is caused by a certain thing that demands a fight, demands rebuke or discipline. That would be peace through discipline for restoration. And the church must exercise this towards one another. But peace within the church must also come um, with peace um, Peace, uh, I'm sorry, peace within the church um, is personal for ourselves, but it's also communal in terms of the church family. And peace with God that's spoken of here is given to us um, by God himself. It says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. We had Peter, our brother here, read from number six. You guys know the ironic blessing? 
Peter just read it from number six. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with his favor. That's all grace. And may the Lord give you what? Peace. It's God's favor on you. Isaiah 26, 12 says this, Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all work for us. God is the one who establishes peace. Okay, so where do we get this peace from? It says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. Or go back to 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from who? From who? God our Father and? And the Lord Jesus Christ. So who gives peace? The Father and? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Father and the Son. So our dad gives us peace, right? The Father in heaven gives peace. He adopted us in Christ. He loves us in Christ. Just like a father loves his children and has compassion on his children, God loves to give peace and grace to his children. But it's not just from God our Father. It's also from the Lord Jesus Christ. Did the Lord promise to give us peace? He did. In John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. This is Thursday night before he leaves them on Friday to be crucified. He also said that same night in John 16, 33, I have told you these things that I'm about to leave. That there's going to be trouble in this world. I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. And Christ did conquer the world the next day. Thursday night, he's telling his disciples this. On Friday, he dies on the cross to become our peace. And so God expects us as Christians to experience this peace. And how do we experience this peace? Look at Philippians 4, 6, and 7. If you have a Bible, you're in 2 Thessalonians. Just turn back three or four pages to the left. You'll see 1 Thessalonians, Colossians, and then Philippians. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. If we had time, we could go verses 4 through 7 to really work on how to have peace. But let's just do 6 and 7 for the sake of time. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So don't worry. Pray. Thank God with your prayers. What will happen in verse 7? If you're not worrying and you're praying and you're thanking God for everything. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So God will give you peace. Earlier it says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. As you're rejoicing in the Lord, as you're being gentle in trials, as you're not worrying or being overcome by anxiety, instead, as, you're, as you take your worries and you bring it to God and you pray your worries to God with gratitude, God's peace will guard you even in the broken situation. And it's a peace that passes all understanding. So I have a question for you guys. Christian, or even if you're not a Christian, where are you looking for peace in your own life? Think about it. Where are you looking for peace in your life? Could it be that you're looking in the wrong places? Could it be that you're looking to the wrong people for peace? Or maybe we could ask it this way. What, what is the hindrance in your life that's ruining your peace. What's the problem in your life right now? What's the big problem in your life today? This Sunday, July 12th, 2020, here in Southeast Los Angeles. In your life right now, as you sit here or as you're watching on Zoom, what is your biggest hindrance to your personal peace right now? Maybe it's a hindrance to your peace. 
But could it also, could it alternatively, could it be that the hindrance to your powerful peace is not a hindrance, but actually a help to help you find your true peace in Christ? Maybe your hindrance is not a hindrance. Maybe it's a help. Maybe it's a pointer for you to go to the God of peace. How are we able to have personal and corporate peace in the midst of suffering, affliction, trouble, tribulation, and trial? How, how can we have this peace? Look at 3.16 again. Go back to 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Here's a key. This sermon is not all in peace. So the point here is that God gives you peace. So we can talk about more on how to do it later. But let's just get this part to, to really uh, see Paul's point. Look at chapter 3, verse 16 of 2 Thessalonians. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way, in every situation. Wow, that'd be great to have that. Now, if you stop there, you're not going to get the point of the peace. The next sentence is the point of the peace. The Lord be with all of you. What is the key to having this peace always and in every way? It's to have who with you? The Lord. You see, what you need is not peace apart from God. You need God. You need God in your trials. You need God in your anxiety. You need God in your trouble. You need God in your relational situation and your relational issues. You need God in your physical trials. You need the Lord of peace himself being with you. Now, God is everywhere. Christian or non-Christian, God is everywhere. And if you're a Christian, God is with you all the time. That's true positionally. But experientially, do you experience God's presence? God's peace because you experience God. Shane and Shane put it to, uh, together in one of my favorite songs, which is not one of their well-known songs. I don't even know the title of it. But it says, um, the, the chorus says, Awaken what's inside of me, tune my heart to all you are in me. And even though you're here, God come. That's the prayer here. Even though you're here, come. I need you, God. I need you to be with me here in my trial even though you're already here with me, I need to experience your presence. I need your powerful peace. Okay, so that's the first point. We know that come, that powerful peace and grace comes through Jesus Christ. Let's go to the second one. Who gets to have God's grace and peace? Who gets to have God's grace and peace? God's people, God's church. Go back to 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 2. I mean verse 1. Let's look at verse 1 now. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to who? To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you, church, to, to you, church in Thessalonians. If you go to 2 Thessalonians 3.16, may the Lord of peace give him, himself give you peace. Who's the you there? It's the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So who gets God's peace? His church. What is a church? I mean, what, what happened to this church? Remember I told you how this church started? Paul gospelized in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. He started discipling. They established a church, and what he, would, what he would do is he would typically move on. And then when he would come back, sometimes in his missionary journeys, he'd come back to appoint elders and exhort them before leaving. But what is a church? Is the church a building? No. Is a church whoever is coming to the church gathering? No, we have guests. We have non-Christians who come to our gatherings. They're welcome to come to our gatherings. They are not the church. We're talking about what is a local church. It's not even guests who are Christians from another church. We're talking about the Christian members in mutual agreement and responsibility in the church. Every Christian, if you're a Christian, listen to me. If you're a Christian, you need to be a member of a church. 
You cannot obey all that Christ commanded. You will necessarily disobey some commands of the Bible if you're not a member of a church. church a church is a group of Christians who exercise mutual responsibility for each other's discipleship in order to disciple their neighbors and the nations. Disciples of Jesus Christ. So, so a church is not merely the saved. It's the saved who have gathered together in, in mutual agreement and commitment and responsibility to one another. So here, Paul is writing to the church of the Thessalonians. And notice this church, going back to 1-1, the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In. When you see that word in, what do you think of? This is typically known as the doctrine of union with Christ. To be in Christ is to be united to Christ. To be in God the Father, in this sense, is to be united to God. So we can think of indwelling, but think of oneness in union. And the best picture for that today that you can see around you, even in this room if you know people, is marriage. The two shall become what? One flesh. The two become one flesh. Now, Chris does not become Bethany, and Bethany does not become Chris to take one married couple. But there's a sense in which they are one. And so under Chris's headship, uh, there's Mr. and Mrs. Chris Valencia right? They are one. And so there's a union there. And so the church is in union with God and with the Father, with God our Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church, as you know, the church and Christ are the true marriage in which there is union. So the church of God, or the church of Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is the Father. I said that God adopted us. In Ephesians 2, we were children of wrath. We are children of the devil, Jesus says in John 8, 44. In a sense, we're children of the devil. We're children of wrath. And God takes us and saves us through Jesus Christ. And he adopts us and he makes us his own children. And we're not second-class children in his household. We are his children. Adopted. He is our father. So we cry out, Abba, Father. You are the family of God. If you're a Christian, you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. If you're a Christian. You're adopted by God, the Father, and he becomes our Father through Jesus Christ, which makes us what? If God is our Father, we are brothers and sisters, right? We're family. That's another gospel identity we have. But it's not just God our Father. It's also the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's just take those three uh, briefly. Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean for him to be Lord? It means for him to be God, you could say. If you see some Old Testament roots to the name Yahweh. But it means that he has authority. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. He's Lord of lords. He's king of kings. Whether you're a Christian or not, Jesus is Lord, and he has authority over you. You can rebel against that authority for a time until the judgment, but you can't, you can't rebel against that authority forever. You eventually will be placed, um, obviously, under that authority of Jesus Christ. But he's the Lord, and when was he declared Lord? According to Romans, he was declared Lord when he was raised from the dead. Now, Jesus Christ is Lord, died on the cross for sinners, raised from the dead, and declared king, declared Lord of all. All authority in heaven and on earth given to him. So there's it's God our Father and the Lord Jesus. And does anyone know what the name Jesus means? You guys love Jesus. He's your favorite being in the universe, right? I mean, Jesus is our Lord. Anyone know what the name Jesus means? I'll throw it out to you guys. Anyone want to say what the name Jesus means? Anyone want to guess? Lord's our salvation. Adeline. What's that? Our Savior. Savior. Good guess. You said the Lord is our salvation. Good. Anyone else want to guess? You guys are right around it. 
What's that? Yeshua is the Hebrew way of pronouncing it. Yes. What does Yeshua mean? The Lord saves. Shua is saves. Yah, like hallelujah, is short for Yahweh, the covenant name of God. So it mean, his name means Yahweh saves. And in Matthew 121, when they were going to name Jesus, the angels told Jesus, told Joseph, you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus saves. Yahweh saves. Okay? That is the gospel. If you're, if you're not a Christian and you don't hear anything else I'm saying, I want you to hear this right now. Okay? If you're not a Christian, listen to this. Um, God made you. He made all of us. We're all made in God's image. God made us to know him and enjoy him and to enjoy each other and enjoy this world. But you, but you know what? We rebelled against God. We are all sinners before God. We've rebelled against God. Instead of using this world to enjoy God and to enjoy God in other people, we wanted to use God to enjoy other things instead of God. And that's called rebellion. We've rebelled against God. We have rejected God as our king and as our treasure. And because of that, the Bible says the penalty or the wages of sin is death, eternal death, damnation, condemnation, and hell forever. That's the that's consequence of our sin. So if you're a human here, listen to my voice on Zoom or here in person, we are damned and condemned to go to hell forever under God's just and righteous judgment. But here's the good news. God sent his son Jesus into the world to live the life you should have lived, to die on the cross for sinners like you and like me. And he rose from the dead so that if you would repent from your sins and repent from your righteousness and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, God would save you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, thank you for coming. We're grateful you're here. If you're listening on video here today, thank you for listening. God is calling you right now through my voice. He's saying, come to me, call to me, call to me, the Lord Jesus, and I will save you from your sins. If you will trust in me, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved with children. Praise God. We have children back here now in our Sunday partial gatherings. Children, God can save you. You don't have to be an adult to become a Christian. It's not a certain age. You need to trust in Jesus Christ and repent from your sins and God will save you. So it's the Lord Jesus. And then there's one more word here. What's that last title for Jesus? Christ. And Marty said it already, Mashiach, Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus is the Davidic king. He's the king that was prophesied, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham, the king of kings, human king, Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords and the king of kings. So he is our king, the king of God's kingdom. And so who gets grace and peace? Those are who are united to God, the father who adopts and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope you saw that there are three identities for God's people who get grace and peace. One, you're the church because you are gathered around Christ and you're in covenant with God's people. You are the family of God because God adopted you as your ch his children and he's our father. And you are slaves or subjects of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's Lord, he's king. And so you are his servants. You are his subjects. So if you're not a Christian, we plead with you to repent and trust in Jesus. Children, let me say one more thing to you. Not only should you call out on Jesus to save you, as we're talking about the church, let me say this to you children. You are growing up in a church, and there's nothing more that your parents would love than for you to re repent from sins, 
trust in Jesus and become a Christian. And then when you get old enough so that we can tell that you're a Christian, that you would come to these waters, get baptized, and become a member of this church. There's nothing more we would love than for that to happen to you. Some of our church members have emailed even this week to pray for the children of our church. And some of you, raise your hand if you prayed for the children, maybe in response to that email this week, or prayed for our children's salvation this week. All right? Children, look around. Hold on, members. Put your hands up if you prayed for children this week. Children, look around. These are, these are people who are praying for you. We love you. And we want you to know Jesus. Not just know him and become a Christian. We want you to join his church. To grow in grace and peace with his church. If there's ways we can do it, let us know. But build friendships with members of this church. All right. So God gives grace and peace to who? To his church. That's secondly, to his church. Through what? The third point. Through what? Apostolic ministry. So here's the key question. How do we grow in grace and peace? Okay, it comes to the church. It comes from God. But how do we grow in it? What do we do? How do you grow in grace and peace? Well, through apostolic ministry. Why do I say apostolic ministry? Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Who are the authors of this letter? Give me the authors. Say them out loud with the masks covering your breath from contaminating other people. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. These are three people, and the letter is coming from them. I say apostolic ministry because, strictly speaking, Silas or Silvanus and Timothy are not apostles. But they are doing apostolic ministry. They're part of Paul's apostolic group. And so here's apostolic ministry. As Paul writes, and as Silvanus and Timothy write, what do they write? They write the letter of 2 Thessalonians. This is a short letter. In my, in my Bible, it's only three pages, not even three full pages. It's a short letter, but this is ministry from Paul, one of their friends who started the church. And he is ministering to them. He's serving them by writing them a letter. So Paul is going to, Paul has a relationship with them. And he's going to teach them. He's going to teach them from the letter. But even before we meditate, and I want to spend most of our time thinking about teaching through the letter, let's think about the fact that teaching not only comes through words, but through your life, doesn't it? Doesn't teaching come not only from what you say, but what you do? That's how we influence each other. So Paul and Timothy and Silas, they have a lifestyle that I want us to understand if we're going to grow in grace and peace. Paul, Silas, and Timothy model interdependence. I want you to think of three categories. I wish I could get back from this pulpit and walk around here a little bit, but I can't for the sake of safety. But there are three categories. Category one, independence. Category two, dependence. And category three, interdependence. What I'm telling you is Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were interdependent. They were not independent and they were not dependent. I want you to think about yourself now. Are you dependent? Are you living as a dependent, are you living as an independent or are you living interdependently? What do I mean by dependence? If you're living in dependence, what that means is, in, in terms of your Christian life, is you can't do anything for yourselves and you need to completely lean on other Christians. You might have a small season of your life where you are, de where you are dependent, completely dependent on other Christians. But typically, that's not where Christians should be. You have things to offer other people. So you should, you should depend on other Christians, but if you're only depending on other Christians and no Christians are depending on you, then you are a dependent. And that's not healthy Christianity. That's not the apostolic model. What about independence? What is independence for the Christian life? I don't need other Christians. I don't need you. I don't need the church. I don't need pastors. I don't need other members. I don't need other disciples. I don't need anyone. I got my Bible and I got Jesus and I got me. 
And that's all I need. I am independent. That too would be a sinful way of living the Christian life. Paul doesn't mean for you to grow in grace and peace by being independent from people. He doesn't mean you to grow in grace and peace um, only by depending on people, but by interdependently living. That means you're depending on others, but they're also depending on you. Paul embraced interdependence. I mean, just think about these three people. Who is Paul? Paul was a persecutor of the church and he got converted, right? And when he got converted, he turned apostle, church planner, and Bible author. And he had other Christians help tutor him along the way. He did go away with God. He did have some independence in some ways because he had to grow on his own. But he also depended on people when he became a church planter and Bible author and apostle. What about Silas or Silvanus? Who is he? He's a Jewish colleague. He was a gifted prophet. And he was highly esteemed among Jerusalem Christians in Acts chapter 15. But he had an inclination toward Gentile Christian ministry. So he joined Paul on his second missionary journey. After Corinth, we don't find Silas connected to Paul anymore. He probably became an associate of the apostle Peter, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Silvanus endured suffering. He was beaten for Christ. He was imprisoned with Paul in the founding of the church of the Thessalonians in Acts 16 and Acts 17. He was known for his absolute reliability and his faithfulness in risking his life in the service of Christ. So Silas was a faithful Christian to depend on. He depended on Paul. Paul depended on him. And then there's Timothy. Timothy was another colleague. Timothy wasn't one of the founding um, the founders of the church of the Thessalonians in Acts 17. He probably joined them later. But the point is we depend on Christians at the beginning of our salvation, at the beginning of a church. We depend on, on Christ and other people throughout the church's life. So Bethany Baptist Church is 71 years old now. And we've depended on other Christians inside and outside this church through the years. And we will continue to do that. The point here is that Paul, Timothy, and Silas embraced interdependence. They loved one another, and they encouraged each other, and they encouraged people to do it more. Paul here, through his example, is calling us to live a corporate life of loving one another. Have you depended on other members of this church to help you grow in the last three weeks? Raise your hand if you've, if you've been blessed and strengthened by another member of this church in the last three weeks in terms of grace and peace in your life. Good. Have you helped anyone else grow in grace and peace in the last three weeks? You might not want to be as, it's not bragging necessarily, but if you, if you, have you, have you sought to encourage anyone in the last three weeks in your Christian life in this church? Yes, no? Raise your hand. I just want to get a, kind of get a visual survey here. Okay. I want to encourage you, those of you who didn't raise your hand, to, to do that. If you're going to be a faithful member of the church, interdependence means you depend on others, but they depend on you too. You need to initiate and be initiated upon. We need each other. We need Christian leaders. We need fellow Christians. We even need other churches. So Paul wrote this letter, and he models interdependence. But that's not the main way that Paul's thinking of grace and peace to come here in 2 Thessalonians. When he says grace to you and peace through their apostolic ministry, what Paul means is through this letter. Paul is writing a letter, and he wants them to read the letter. Because Paul thinks, have you noticed in, in verse 2, it says, what's the second word of verse 2 in your Bible? Grace what? Grace to you. Now go to 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ come to you. 
It doesn't say grace. It doesn't close with grace to you. It says grace what? Be with you. Grace to you at the beginning of the letter. Grace be with you at the end of the letter. What does that mean? I think John Piper's answer is the best answer. So I'm going to continue to say his until I find a better answer. Here's John Piper's answer. When the letter is coming to you, God's words are coming to you, right? Apostolic ministry, the, the apostles' teaching is coming to you. That's what the church was devoted to in Acts chapter 242. The apostles' teaching. Apostolic teaching is coming to you when you read the letter, right? So you read 2 Thessalonians, and grace is coming to you through the words of the apostles. As you're done reading this two-and-a-half-page letter, and you get to the end, what's Paul's prayer for you? That the grace that came to you would remain with you. Grace comes to you through apostolic ministry, and then grace, may that grace be with you, may it continue to be with you as you continue to live on after this Sunday. But remember, grace decays, so you need more grace to come to you again. And may that grace be with you until you get grace again. And may that grace come to you and be with you until you get grace again. And you keep filling up your grace tank over and over and over again through apostolic ministry, through the letter of, of the scripture. I mean, through the letter, through the words, or through this letter and the words of Scripture. Churches today can only grow if they have God's Word. When I say this, I mean, you, say, you hear it every week, so I don't want to be cliche, but it is God's Word. Man must not live on bread alone, but on what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. You need the Bible. If you stop getting the Bible, you will die spiritually. If you stop eating food, you'll die. Stop drinking water, you'll die, right, physically. If you stop reading the Bible, you will die spiritually. If you don't, and maybe not read the Bible, if you stop hearing the Bible, because some people can't read. If you stop hearing the Bible, if you stop taking in the Bible, the words of God to live on, you will die. This church will die. Our church is relatively healthy. It's grown healthier in the last few years. This church will get unhealthy if we stop hearing and receiving the words of God. The Bible, God's words, must feed our church. It must guide our church. It must rebuke our church. It must correct our church. It must train our church in righteousness. It must keep building our church. And we must keep teaching each other and speaking and learning together as a community what God's word says and how it applies, not just on July 12, 2020, but July 19, 2020, and every Sunday after this that God keeps us on this earth. Situations change in your life, in our church. God's word doesn't change. But because God's word is going to the new situation again and again, we keep tweaking applications, right? You keep fitting the application to the moment because we need to eat God's word today. You can't live off of last year's sermons. They have decayed in large measure. There's some sustaining health from there, but you can't live off of it. We need God's word. We need to take in God's word all the time. Let me read to you an extended quote from John Frame, one of my favorite theologians. This is what he says. I hope this is encouraging you to do. It's encouraging to you. It's really encouraging to me. The best proof of the Bible is what happens when you read it. For when you read scripture with trust and faith, something wonderful happens. God himself draws near. Imagine he condescends to speak to us within the covers of a book. Quite amazing, really. And it's not as if he gives us the book and then goes away. No, when you read this book in faith, you enter into a very personal relationship with God. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul says that the gospel came to the Thessalonians, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. The gospel is words, but it is never just words. 
when you hear this message in faith, something very wonderful, very supernatural is taking place. Let me just pause here. This is why I love preaching. This is why I love Sundays gathering with the church. Because not everyone here, but a lot of you are exercising faith right now as you hear God's word. And something supernatural happens every Sunday when we gather. So let me read that sentence again and continue. When you hear this message in faith, something very wonderful, very supernatural is taking place. When the words go into your mind, the Holy Spirit speaks them into your heart. When the risen Christ opened the scriptures to the disciples after his resurrection, they marveled how their hearts burned within them as Jesus taught them the scriptures. The Bible is not only the place where God has spoken, it is the place where he still speaks with power and assurance, causing our hearts to burn within us because of how wonderful it is. Amen. God's word is wonderful. What a privilege. We have God's words between these covers and God can speak to us right now. So church family, meditate on Sundays with great expectation and anticipation. Meditate on scripture on Sundays. We have divinity school classes, Christian apologetics, at Peter's teaching. We have a biblical theology class for women that's open to all women in the church. We have um, a membership considered class, which is like Christianity 101 or 102 for basics and for those who want to join this church. But the point is, let's understand God's word. Let's be a community that asks questions, that reads the Bible with one another, and that we're a learning community that's always growing. I love doing Bible reading with you guys. I love doing Bible reading on Zoom or when I meet with you, and I love the fact that I don't have to just teach what I have prepared. I love teaching what I prepare, but I love just going to the passage and saying, what do you think? What was your light bulb? What question came to your mind? What application do you see? I love learning the Bible with you and learning from you as members of this church. We need to keep doing that if we're going to have grace and peace come to us and stay with us again and again. Christian, plan and set aside unhurried time for Bible reading and study in your own life. Set aside time for apostolic teaching. Read the scriptures, pursue understanding. Paul said in another uh, letter, think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think about the Bible. Think together, think on your own and God will give you understanding. And then trust the apostolic teaching. It's not enough to know it and hear it. We need to believe it as we're going to find out as we keep going through 2 Thessalonians. If you're not a Christian, consider what the Bible says. The Bible is God's gift, not just to Christians. It's a gift to you if you're not a Christian. And children, I know I, I, I'll speak to my children, but for the other children here, for my children, I know I force my children every day to read the Bible. Forced. They, they very willingly do it. But I do require it. And I will say, hey, if you haven't read your Bible, go do that first. And I will say, no, don't move on with your day until you've read your Bible. They're still in my home, so I have the authority to expose them to God's word. But God does speak to them. I pray that God softens their heart. But I want to say to children, read your Bible every day and pray that God will give you faith. Pray that God will change your heart every day as you read the Bible. God gives grace and peace to his church through apostolic ministry. There's only one person who always had his grace tank full, faithfully. And who's that? Jesus Christ. He never stopped depending on God, the Father. He never stopped depending on the power of the Holy Spirit in his life for grace and peace. And yet, when Christ was on the cross, 
he was stripped of God's peace. And instead, what did he receive? God's wrath, God's enmity, God's anger, God's judgment. Christ hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And God did abandon him. God stripped him of peace. And all he knew for those three hours in darkness was the wrath of God, the anger of God, the judgment of God for the sins of Christ's people. So now you can have peace and you can have grace and you don't have to line up at a Chick-fil-A and sleep there overnight to get 52 free Chick-fil-A meals for one year. You don't have to win some contest to get free grace. God purchased it in Christ so that you and I can have grace every single day. We can have peace, renewed grace, renewed peace. As grace decays, fresh doses of grace, his mercies are new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. So here's what I want you to do. Here's the application, last closing application. Expect God's grace. It's like God pours out his grace on you and it's all around you and you just don't expect it so you don't see it and you just kind of walk right past it. Expect God's grace in your life. Look for God's grace in your life every day because it's all around you. Mature, let me give you the secret to mature Christianity. You know what's, what's one of the secrets of mature Christians versus immature Christians? Mature Christians, by God's grace, more regularly and consistently, consistently notice God's grace. So it's like you have an immature Christian and a mature Christian and grace is all around both of them. But the more mature you are, the more you notice it and praise God for it and lean on it and drink from it and trust it and grow in it. But it's not that God's given you more grace and just, you know, in that regard, it's, it's around you. So raise your expectations of grace. If you do not raise your expectations for grace and feed on grace through apostolic ministry, your past grace will grow stale, it will grow empty, and your soul will shrink and shrivel. But if you expect apostolic ministry to give you grace, if you expect God to give you grace, you will grow in grace. You'll be strong in God's grace and peace. You'll more consistently experience God's peace always and in every way as you experience God himself, God's presence. Expiring grace is meant to sustain you for a moment until the next dose of grace. And it comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes all throughout your day in your life. God gives you fresh doses of grace and peace because God gives you fresh experiences of God himself. God loves you and he wants to draw near to you. God gives himself to you again and again and again if you'll have him. Let's pray. I'll give you a minute to pray on your own and then we'll pray. I'll close in prayer.
Father, pour out grace and peace on us. Thank you that you are faithful and you don't grow tired of giving us grace even when we neglect it and spurn it and um, care less about it. Grow our expectations. Grow us in grace and peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.